So there's a guy I know who said his older sister's friend's cousin was roommates with someone who worked in a gig with, uh, you know, Kelly Ripa? Yeah. Well, someone who looks just like her. Right. Anyway, she said she knew someone who heard this podcast mm-hmm. that I think was like by an escaped convict with mm-hmm. a black dog who had an ax for an arm or head yeah. or something and popped this pimple that had a spider in it because he was no also way. a babysitter. And I guess the podcast was coming from inside the house. But no anyway, way. supposedly, if you ask your smart speaker to play this show three times, you'll hear it. Three times. Should we do it? Let's try it. Okay. Full casting crew. Full casting crew. Full casting crew. Before we, I wanted to just play this uh, theme song. Who can take a sunrise, sprinkle it with dew, comfort it in chocolate and a miracle or two? The Candyman. I thought it was weird when you wanted to watch this, but... The Candyman can. I mean, I remember it from being a kid. <laughs> and it doesn't put you in the Halloween spirit? I mean, you know, trick-or-treating, getting some candy in your bag? Yeah, razor blade in your apple. Did that ever actually happen? I don't know if that's ever actually happened. I remember that very vividly, to the point of uh, really avoiding apples. I think as bad as the world is, maybe it never was quite that bad. Well, we are here to discuss Candyman. Not the Candyman. Candyman, an <laughs> epically weird, crazy horror movie, Chris. Happy Halloween, listeners. Oh, that's right. It's our Halloween episode. Trick or treat, Chris. Is that a choice? I'll take treat. Okay, your treat is you get to spend <laughs> a couple hours with me. <laughs> Woo! I feel like I've been tricked. We have a listener comment from our listener, Matt the Engineer, who has some follow-up information for our Phantom of the Paradise episode. Um, He's a big fan of the band Kiss, and he tells us that the guy who did the voiceover for the trailer for Phantom of the Paradise also did a lot of rock-related voiceovers around this time, including a commercial for Bruce Springsteen's Greetings from Asbury Park, and more to the point, Kiss's Hotter Than Hell record. Burning cross country with fire and thunder. Kiss with a new album that's all rock and roll. Kiss the demons of rock. Burning it up in concert and on their new album, Harder Than Hell, on Casablanca Records and Ambex Tapes. Available wherever records are sold. Which, as it happens, just turned 45 years old. Yes. I would say, Chris, one thing that you get from watching a lot of movies for the pod is an appreciation for those movies that are deliriously weird in their own way. Yes. This is one of them. This is a movie, I mean, there are millions of horror movies, and I think in the horror genre, to make something that stands out, that stands the test of time in a genre where there are hundreds of releases per year, this is one of the weirdest horror movies I think I've ever seen. Yeah? I think it's great. It's just the way it unfolds, where it's set, the depth of the backstory of the anti-hero, all the other shit that's going on in it. It's it's such a strange and unique and singular movie. Did you see it in 1992 when it came out? Or do you remember at all? I remember it, but I don't know if I remember it from like the 1992 version of like, oh, you got to watch this scene where you can't do it on YouTube, but you someone like- has a VHS tape or maybe a DVD. Well, I remember this movie coming out and it didn't seem all that interesting. And I think I did not realize, as a lot of the people on the special features on the DVD were saying, just how different it was to have a horror film with a black main character. Yeah. I was in the Chicago area at the time. Right. Cabrini Green was in the imagination sure. quite a bit. And I wish I had actually gone to see, and I also at the time was not into horror. I think that's- You wish you had gone to see Cabrini Green? That probably wouldn't have gone well, Chris. Oh, I think it would have gone fine. Listen, 
Listen, open heart. Open heart, open minds. Open heart, open minds. Uh, No, I wish I'd gone to see this just to see what it must have felt like at the time because part of the reason why I suggested it last year uh, was it has gained such a reputation for being so forward-thinking and well-made. And when finally seeing it, I was like, wow. Like you said, it's not only strange, but there's so much that makes it unique. Let's play the trailer for people who haven't seen it or even if you have, you'll want to revisit it again. Have you ever heard of Candyman? If you look in the mirror, you say his name five times. In cities everywhere. Candyman. They whisper his name. Right. Candyman. It's just a story. Candyman. Candyman. Just a ghost story. Candyman. An entire community starts attributing the daily horrors of their lives to a mythical figure. The legend first appeared in 1890. He was attacked, mutilated, and burned to death. Poor Candyman. Helen, a woman died in there. Leave it. Everyone knows he isn't real. That's modern oral folklore. Everyone. Except Helen Lyle. Bring it up. It ain't safe around here. I don't scare too easy. Well, no Belvoothy Jane. They ain't never gonna catch him. Who? Candyman. Who is that? I came for you. Do I know you? Now she is about to discover. Helen? Get out! Get out! What's behind the mystery? Sick. What's behind the legend? Listen, he's under the bed! And most terrifying of all... Come with me. What's behind the mirror? He's here. Candyman, you don't have to believe. Just beware. That's such a good trailer. Yeah. I just realized they redubbed the part of the British guy at the dinner scene telling the Candyman legend for use in the trailer. Oh, I didn't realize that. Poor Candyman. Father executed a terrible revenge. He paid a pack of brutal hooligans to do the deed. The part where he's like, the legend began in 1819. They redid that in an American accent for the trailer. The legend first appeared in 1819. He was attacked, mutilated, and burned to death. Candyman. Got it. But in the actual movie, it's the pompous, long-haired, really well-cast. It's Rab Butler from The Crown, Michael Culkin. Oh. I mean, you're not a Crown watcher. I'm not a Crown watcher. Get thee to The uh, Crown, Chris. No way, man. I'm an anti-royalist. I would like to just add this brilliant little IMDb twist to Michael Culkin, who plays one of the professors in this movie, Candyman. His IMDb bio says, he is unmarried and lives in London and Norfolk with several dogs and a llama. (laughs) To each his own, Chris. I love the TriStar Pictures galloping horse logo. That puts me firmly back in the 90s. 
So when I saw that, I was all in. When you watch movies and the studio logo comes up, do you like there to be music from the film over the studio logos? Or do you like the studio logo to appear silent? Or do you have an opinion one way or another? In a broad sense, I don't really have an opinion, though I think we are now in 2019 living in an age where every production company has like a feature film of yes. its own. Yes. And I think we've gone a little bit too far. It's gone a little direction. too far. Yeah. But other than that, I wouldn't have had a, a, uh, an opinion. Sometimes I like it. Sometimes I don't. Yeah. So among the many things that I find interesting and weird about the movie Candyman, it's a very 1992 movie, but it also successfully and also unsuccessfully is populated with a bunch of other things that are going on. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of race discussion going on in terms of how they choose to tell the story. Slavery, as you said, Cabrini Green, probably the most infamous housing project in American history, actually filmed there. Yeah. Which for a film headed up by a British guy named Bernard Rose, mm -hmm. who is not a black director, it just adds to some of the whimsy and weirdness of the undertaking. It's also an adaptation of a short story by Clive Barker. Did you read the short story, The Forbidden, from Books of Blood? I read Books of Blood back in the high school days, but so much has happened since high school sure. to render the memory I was cells a bit. <laughs> Look, even if you'd read it just yesterday, I wouldn't trust your memory. <laughs> I mean, Books of Blood is like a seminal horror text yeah. that you have to read if you're going to dip a toe into the blood. Which I have to, I did not realize Clive Barker to me always seemed a little bit second rate, but reading about this movie, yeah. seeing this movie, reading about him, listening to him interviewed, I'm fascinated with him. He's, yes. he's a fascinating guy and a beautiful, beautiful, let's not go overboard, uh, an excellent writer. Like I thought yeah. The Forbidden was a, was a fantastic story, but it's so interesting to see how it was adapted to this, not just moving it from Liverpool, where Clive Barker is from, to Chicago. But of course, as, as uh, somebody points out in one of the special features, there's not that much action. Yeah. You wouldn't be able to get a feature film out of it. So Bernard Rose, besides transferring it, had to create much more of a story. So it was fascinating to see what was kept, what was added, why it was added, how that changed things. Mm -hmm. It was one of those movies, I'm watching the movie and I'm just thinking, how the hell did this get made? Yeah. It's like on paper, it's amazing that any studio said yes to this. Bernard Rose, the director, is not and was not really a director of note. It's not like we're ready to greenlight whatever you want to do after the success of... <laughs> Some Bernard Rose film. That, say, yeah, he had like a sort of low budget horror film that he had made. Clive Paper Barker House. actually, was Hellraiser yes. after this or before this? Hellraiser was before this. Okay, so Clive Barker probably had more to do with this getting off the ground yes. than Bernard Rose. I, I did watch the featurettes. They didn't really get into a lot of the business of the movie. Other than Clive talked about his other filmic experiences, Hellraiser most notably. I mean, Hellraiser, that's certainly a much bigger movie than this was mm -hmm. and probably occupies a larger place in the horror pantheon. It's a tough call because Candyman has taken on so much, I think partially because it's one of the very few with a black lead character. Yeah. Whereas Hellraiser is, I think, receded a little bit. Candyman remains in the zeitgeist and is famously going to be remade by a team that includes Jordan Peele. Right. Tony Todd has been cast. Yes. A black female director, mm -hmm. Nia DaCosta is the director, which is going to certainly lend some cool takes to the approach. I don't think we know much about what they're doing. Uh, another bizarro, weird aspect of this movie is that it has a score by <laughs> Philip Glass. What the hell? <laughs>
who got tricked into <laughs> who got tricked into doing it. <laughs> to do it. Who tricked him in? The director? I believe it was the producer whose last name is Poole. Oh yeah, Alan Poole. I guess knew Philip Glass from some serious movie they had worked on, and he said, "Oh, you know, you'll you'll like this, Philip. It probably teased the mythology and the history and some of yeah. the weightier themes." And then famously, when Philip Glass finally saw the movie, <laughs> called up Alan Poole, like, "You made me do a horror movie. What the fuck?" Now, do you think that that has added to its mystique? No. In the, I think no one. You don't think that's why that's why it has the staying power? Arguably, it's better for Philip Glass to have had this credit than it is for the movie to have Philip Glass's music in it. I mean, it gives him a certain amount of cool that he wouldn't otherwise have. Cool. It gives him a certain amount of royalty paychecks that keep coming in. True. In an interview, he's saying, like, yeah, I still get paid for it. I didn't particularly like it, but... Oh he, oh, he doesn't like it? Oh, so oh I meant more that, like, he's not a horror fan. He was sort of surprised. I, I don't remember if he said that he's... Well... Now that you said that, that's the truth I'm going with. The score is good. I actually, th- I oh, thought yeah. the music, I, I didn't know it was Philip Glass until I finished watching the movie. Oh, really? In retrospect, it does have those like repetitive Glassian musical thematic bits. Mm-hmm. Ha, 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 ha. Huh. That's Philip Glass, basically, right? Yeah. They just reduced every- the entire man to his everything that, to that. Listen, I'm sure he'd agree. He's like, yeah, that's my thing. Good. Go with it. You know? <laughs> Do horror fans embrace this? Because it doesn't really play by the rules of a horror movie. There's a long stretch of the movie before anything happens horror-wise. Yes. There's tremendous buildup of anticipation and backstory. And so when the guy does show up in that parking garage scene, it has real force and presence. Yes. Even though there's no special effects in that first moment, it's just Tony Todd in this standing there. I think the first shot of him is sort of from far away. And yet he is so regal looking and you have heard so much about this character. There's something very powerful about him keeping his distance at first. Here's how he introduces himself. Tony Todd, the great Virginia Madsen. She's awesome in this movie. Yes. She's an atypical heroine in a horror movie to me. In what way? She's unafraid. She's the one who boldly explores and goes into places, including Cabrini Green, where as a white academic 
she's not going to feel safe and comfortable. And we're presented a vision of that in the film where yes. there are threats, real and imagined, in the housing project. I also think that the way they did her interaction with him, obviously, you have to skirt a pretty wide highway of blackmail, white female filmic bullshit. And mm -hmm. I think this movie does an interesting and pretty good job of skirting a lot of that. And since the characters have a historical connection, there's a relationship there that he's aware of that she's not aware of yet. Right. But it's not like the big black man sexually threatening the white woman. Right. To boil those things down, I think it has a lot to do with both characters have stronger, not just backstories. They really have objectives that that is more than just the action, more than just the horror. As I mentioned, this is an adaptation of a short story for people who haven't seen it. Virginia Madsen's character, Helen, is an academic studying urban legends and hears about the Candyman urban legend. And in speaking to somebody at the university, I think a cleaning lady, hears that this is coming from Cabrini Green. She goes into these abandoned, these abandoned uh, apartments. The more she goes into it, the more she then comes into contact with the spirit Candyman. One of the interesting things about the movie is there's a lot of truth underpinning what we're given about places like Cabrini Green. So for example, the construction of Cabrini Green was apparently so shoddy that you could punch a hole into your neighbor's right. apartment. One of the things that inspired part of this film, besides The Forbidden itself, was a story from the Chicago Reader in 87 about murderers who, like in the film, came in through the medicine cabinet. Because again, these apartments would be butted up against each other, bathrooms between them. And this is true. There were, and, and this, this occurred. True, there was an so actual weird. medicine cabinet that there was a hole that led from one apartment to another so you could take out your medicine cabinet, knock on the back of your mm -hmm. neighbor's medicine cabinet and enter. And there was a woman who died. The author of that piece in The Reader wrote a thing after this came out because he was frustrated because, of course, Cabrini Green became a symbol of this kind of urban blight. And mm -hmm. people were fascinated by this murder for prurient reasons. And, and this detail of the medicine cabinet sort of lived on on its own. And he was like, people were sort of missing mm -hmm. the fact that this place was a mess. And he actually said that he tried to watch the movie and, quote, I watched as much of it as I could. <laughs> so not everybody loved it. We're getting to the end of Cabrini Green's life when this movie was filmed, because it was famously knocked down three or four years after this movie came out, mid-90s maybe? It started, I don't know how long started, the process yeah. took. As much as it's a horror movie, you're right. The characters, the clip we just played where Candyman finally shows up, that's probably 40 minutes into the movie. By then, we've learned about Helen's relationship to typecast Xander Berkeley as the <laughs> philandering <laughs> boyfriend slash spouse. There is something about him that's kind of unlikable. That's what's kind of fascinating about him is I, he's probably one of those guys, he's probably like the nicest just... Yeah. genuine, caring person in real life. And that's the thing. Like when he plays those unlikable characters, I'm thinking of 24 specifically, he does give it a little bit of humanity underneath it and makes the character much more than just that stereotype. His first IMDb credits go back to 1981 where he was in Mommy Dearest. Oh, wow. He did MASH. He did Heart to Heart. Cagney and Lacey. Riptide. A lot of 80s TV. Oh, he was in Time Code? You've zipped ahead about 30 years. Sorry, in the, in I, was, the, sorry I was going I, backward. The career of Xander Berkeley. And he plays a really unlikable, another, not only her husband, but another sort of competing academic. And boy, this is one thing that is kept from the short story, which is fun, that academics are not, are not really liked by Clive Barker or by yeah. Bernard Rose. All the stereotypes of pomposity yes. and, uh, and obnoxiousness. Great. I love and, it. And again, it's, it's great to see it live. Like you said, Michael Culkin. Michael Culkin is fantastic. Here's the uh, legend of Candyman dinner scene, which again, rife with the pomposity of academia. He doesn't get his in the end, does he? Well, he's he should come back for the sequels. True. Candyman was the son of a slave. His father had amassed a considerable fortune from designing a device 
for the mass producing of shoes after the Civil War. Candyman had been sent to all the best schools and had grown up in polite society. He had a prodigious talent as an artist and was much sought after when it came to the documenting of one's wealth and position in society in a portrait. Well, it was in this latter capacity that he was commissioned by a wealthy landowner to capture his daughter's virginal beauty. Well, of course, they fell deeply in love and she became pregnant. Poor Candyman. Father executed a terrible revenge. He paid a pack of brutal hooligans to do the deed. They chased Candyman through the town to Cabrini Green, where they proceeded to saw off his right hand with a rusty blade. But no one came to his aid. But this was just the beginning of his ordeal. Nearby, there was an apiary. Dozens of hives filled with hungry bees. They smashed the hives and stole the honeycomb and smeared it over his prone, naked body. Candyman was stung to death by the bees. They burnt his body on a giant pyre and then scattered his ashes over Cabrini Green. A little historical license. I mean, there was no Cabrini Green in the era that he's talking yeah. about. But and it's not like it was the name of like the meadow no, where the right. apartment I looked that up. I was like, oh, is that why it's called? No. Oh. <laughs> For a horror movie, there's a lot of difficult, complicated American fact and history in that little yes. monologue. And, and it gives the monster of the story, in quotes, a sort of reason for being. And again, like you said, I think it makes it takes it away from just the trope of this otherworldly like thing. No, this comes from a real emotional place. Mm-hmm. And of course, the the victims, if you you know, if you look at it just racially, the victims in the present day, there's a tie to their own sin in the past. Most Candyman kills, you're kind of like, great. My favorite kill in the movie, though, I have to admit, I had the, the opposite response was like the psychiatrist who's talking yeah, to her. Yeah, he deserves it. He's, he's a psychiatrist <laughs> doing like an intake interview with no, a patient. No, he's an ambulance chaser who is excited for the notoriety in having this mass murderer in his office. Listen, he's, everybody's he's so, got to make a living. He's like <laughs> levitating with glee over her predicament. Helen, this is a writ of detention from the state attorney's office. Now, for the past month. Month? Yes. We've been stabilizing you on a heavy dosage of Thorazine. You probably remember very little or, or nothing. Get me my attorney. I'm working for your defense. We have to assess your ability to stand trial. Helen, you've been charged with first-degree murder. Why don't you tell me what happened in your apartment? Oh. The night you were admitted, did the killer appear to you? One thing that no part of me, no matter how hidden, is capable of that. I can prove it. Huh? I can call him. Candyman. 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 
First kill in the movie, horror movie trivia, is Sam Raimi's brother, who kind of looks like Joseph Gordon-Levitt. The road not taken. But he's not the one who dies, right? Is it, isn't it oh, the Oh, no, girl? it's the girl. It's the girl, the, yeah. Right. Candyman. There's a certain, if you can say there's restraint in a movie where a guy dispatches people with a bloody hook, <laughs> there is a lot of restraint in some of the kills. But then when there isn't, it's jarring and shocking. Yeah. The evisceration of Casey Lemon's character. Where Vanessa Williams, great supporting role, I was like, are they showing us that Candyman killed her baby? Um, Spoiler for 92's Candyman, it survives. The Don't baby worry, survives. But they show you that the crib is all bloody and the dog's head. Yeah. yeah and she's like survive. freaking out looking at the crib, which is right. all bloody. I think that your signature openings get appropriate amount of attention. I don't think, however, that your signature endings get enough. I think we need to center them in the narrative of the podcast. So I'll cut it back into the center. What Chris does is he plays the last line of dialogue from a famous or infamous or known or slightly well-known film. And what we want you to do is be first to figure out what it was. When the episode goes up, we'll put up a image from the film that you're talking about that doesn't give it away. And we will say, who can identify? Identify Chris's final line from this week's episode. Oh, I love that. And we'll do I that think on, that's great. Do that on Facebook. Facebook finally has a reason for being. Going back to some of the things that I think it's impressive that the film got right. You know, Vanessa Williams is portrayed as, I don't know if it's the director had said this or if it was the uh, African-American professor couple in one of the featurettes right. who talk a lot about the viewing of this movie through the lens of being black in America. I watched it slightly schizophrenically. In other words, I could just enjoy it as a movie at the same time I was understanding that it was a movie using black faces that was designed for white people. It was designed to tap into their fears of the other. Although, I think that they actually went pretty decently in terms of trying to humanize the situation, but they couldn't avoid certain tropes. Now, I remember uh, you know, wondering, about, well, why did we have to be the villain? Why do we have to be the monster? Well, the fact is that there is actually one sense in which that is social progress. You know, assuming that there are other representations at the same time at your local movie theater. Right. And in 1992, you had Sidney Poitier in his last really good movie, Sneakers, and you had Wesley Snipes in White in White Men Can't Jump. You know, and um, and and you had uh, Wesley Snipes again in Passenger 57. So you have a variety of roles of intelligence and agency and responsibility and even sexuality and so forth and so on. So if you have a full representation, now, okay, we can be the monster because we can also be the hero. If you can't be the hero, then it's not fair to ask you to be the monster right. or, the, or play the fool. But you know, honey, that's a great point you bring up because the 90s really were this renaissance of black film. I mean, to this day, uh, or at least right up till Black Panther and Get Out, we were still reminiscing to a degree about, oh, you know, you could have love stories, you could have action adventure, you could have mysteries, right. uh, films that we haven't seen replicated almost since, you know, in some ways. Yes. Uh, but in a lot of ways, Candyman almost feels more like a vestige of the 80s, like the late 80s. There was that sort of dearth and 
urban jungle, uh, lots of preoccupation with uh, crime. 1992 is a precursor to the 1994 crime bill um, that President Clinton passed. And this was a time where there was a lot of concern, even in black communities, to be fair, about crime. Sure. So the presentation of Cabrini Green almost being as much of a monster as Candyman himself falls into that sort of political narrative of that era um, where black children are super predators, you know, Helen yeah. walks into the bathroom and gets assaulted, uh, right. you know, all that stuff is sort of and, rolled up in there too. And someone points out that, you know, the Vanessa Williams character is representative of a certain slice of the Cabrini Green experience where you have a lot of single moms raising these kids and doing a great job of it within this environment uh, with a lot of forces being brought to bear on, on the residents yes. outside the evil Candyman legend that haunts the housing yeah. complex. I'm talking more about, before like, you know, you even get to the supernatural, the supernatural murder shit, with the, with just the, the American art, stuff, the you know? Hook. When you're talking about the restraint, because this story is so much about stories, it was interesting to hear that Clive Barker took that on over the course of his career. He found himself becoming more interested in why we tell stories, specifically mm-hmm. horror stories, and the, the, as he put it, the metatextual elements yes. of horror stories. He drops a lot of references, that Clive. But when Purcell, like you said, it's about him telling the story that he knows, mm-hmm. and there's something that is lost when you see it because not only it's a little bit exploitative in the way that horror can be yes. just looking at this ugly thing but you also lose the the telephone element yeah. in, of a way an urban right. legend grows and that's a really interesting thing about this character because it's not just that he's coming back from revenge there is something about the Candyman that exists because the people believe in him fear right. him talk about him and I thought that was an interesting wrinkle and something that like you said is one of the things that makes it so freaking weird in Mm -hmm. the uh, last third of the movie. Yes. I mean, the movie gets unexpected. Usually in a horror movie, I kind of know we're coming up to some of the usual tropes of what happens in these stories. Not this movie. I was... I guess it is sort of a trope to take the Helen character and have her descend into what society at large in the movie views as insanity, but which we, the viewer, know is actually happening to her. Mm-hmm. But the way they did, the way they did that to our heroine really pulled no punches. I mean, she basically is framed for the incredibly violent murders of, of her best friend, of her best friend, and for uh, no, not for, no, because Vanessa Williams. Right. Helen wakes up and has no idea what the hell is going on, and Vanessa Williams is attacking her with a machete because she wakes up in her bed with there's blood everywhere looks at the dog that Vanessa Williams has to protect her and her child the dog's head has been cut off and Vanessa Williams is attacking her because she thinks she killed her dog and took her baby or killed right. her baby then the police show up right away. Finally. Which is a funny thing because it's a white woman at Cabrini Green. Because it's a white, well, again, this is another thing that the truth beneath some of this is like, I think Vanessa Williams' character, when she talks about the killing that she heard next door, like, Mm -hmm. which is based on the story you were saying the real journalist wrote about. Right. You all know about Ruthie Jane? They all been here, you know. Newspapers, cops, caseworkers. They all want to know. I heard her screaming. I heard her right through the walls. I dialed 911. Nobody came. Nobody came. Everybody's scared. He, he could come right through these walls, you know? I'm scared. Scared for my child. They ain't never gonna catch him. Who? Candyman. I dialed 911. Nobody came. It's the age-old truism of calling 911 in a black community 
as opposed to calling 911 in an upper class white yes. community where the response time is going to be much quicker. And I think someone says it in the features that because the guy was British, the director in Britain, part of their version of the race divide is class more right. so than it is in America or but since he has that awareness, I think he's bringing that to this material with the distance of an outsider and an ability to kind of use it to help his story in a way that like the two academics say in that great supporting feature, there are some hits and there are some misses for them as black mm -hmm, viewers. Mm -hmm. That really good. thing was fascinating because of course the whole time that I'm watching it, we're looking at it through 2019 eyes and we're looking at it to talk about it and to analyze it. So I couldn't help but be conscious of the racial politics mm -hmm. of it. And, you know, we look back and um, the anti-crime hysteria, mm -hmm. you know, again, this is post eighties and stuff. Like that. that was in the air. The fact that these projects did exist and there was, as these um, mm -hmm. academics put it, there really was crime. And a lot of people living there were like, yes, please, please more. Yeah. Uh, and yet at the same time, th that also led to a different kind of exploitation. So looking at it now it was hard to enter into it just as an entertaining movie mm -hmm. because I was so conscious of all of those things. And it was excellent to hear them break down some of the things that the movie did do with some sensitivity and some that they did not. And even though they could be conscious of mm -hmm. the politics of something like this, this large black man pursuing a white woman and the ugly trope of that – they also acknowledge that this was dramatic because these characters had their own lives to them. You can't dismiss it as just being exploitative. Right. There was something more to it. And they didn't make a cheap choice, like have her be in sexual thrall right. to the black man who's, who's threatening her. Uh, I heard the director say like, hearing women scream in horror movies is boring and overused. So what would we do if we actually encountered a, some sort of a supernatural force? And the choice that they made was to have her sort of be in this kind of hypnotic, trance-like place, which feels different to me. And it's also different than sexual thrall. And for as much as academics get shit in the movie and stuff like that, I think part of it also has to do with here is a person who is going into yes. a place out of curiosity and wanting to learn. And that she has this drive which is pushing her, which— Where um, you and I would just be running away. <laughs> Uh, when you talked about how the trope of our protagonist being thought to be insane, to me in this situation, it seemed even more potent because this movie is so much about stories that are told that take on a reality mm -hmm. of their own. So to have somebody who is studying that reality mm -hmm. and then finding herself coming up against the difference between that reality and an objective reality and having that look insane to everybody else, but she knows that there is a truth underneath it. And we, of course, as the viewers get to see that truth as well. Uh, I thought was was very exciting. Also, shout out to Casey Lemons, who also appears in the friend role to Jodie Foster in Silence of the yes. Lambs episode of Full Cast and Crew podcast available right now wherever you get podcasts. It's, it's still there. It's sitting there. It's sitting there waiting for you. Some of the things that are so weird. Just Let's just stop down for a second. They filmed the exteriors at Cabrini Green. That's just so crazy to do. How did these decisions get okayed in a way like... That's not a safe environment to shoot a movie in as far as Hollywood would be con concerned. Right. And yet you hear all the people talking in the production like, yes, they knew they had to be careful. They knew they had to pay off four or five different gangs that basically controlled the turf. Tell me if I misunderstood this, that some of the gang members in the film are were actual gang Oh, absolutely. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Those kids are actually... Rep, yeah. Not just paid off, but actually no, put no, into the movie. They are, they are, they are in the movie. And the only thing that happened was someone did fire a rifle into the sound truck uh, one of the last days of filming. Um, but even that, they're sort of like, yeah, you know. It's, so it's just so weird. Like, it's such a strange choice that really pays off because 
And again, the director, as an English person, I think he says, he's like, you know, if I thought of what's the most frightening place in America, Cabrini Green. It's that white fear lens that I think is used to great effect in the movie because it says that a housing project is one of the scariest places you could ever mm -hmm. find yourself in. But in this movie, it's also because this urban myth is actually true. But then I think the link is therefore explicit. It's a scary place because this uh, supernatural force is created by the environment, the environment which the larger society has created. This is our sin to create and sort of let go to seed these yes. uh, environments. Going back to The Forbidden, because I just read it yesterday and I was fascinated by how much, how many of the details did stay in it. One quote from the beginning, they talked about, first of all, Candyman opens with these really cool aerial shots over Chicago, Yeah, which I guess they were saying at the time, it was a new technology, a new machine called the Skycam, which could shoot up to a 500 millimeter lens with no vibration. But that is something that in the story itself, their brainchild, referring to the uh, architects who designed the council estates that that mm -hmm. uh, in Liverpool in the story, their brainchild, they would doubtless argue, was as brilliant as ever. Its geometries as precise, its ratios as calculated. It was people who had spoiled Spectre Street. Mm. So it's this idea that mm -hmm. these people coming from above to impose this thing that they find beautiful and it makes sense in a way and yet becomes terrible to the people mm -hmm. that are forced to live within it. I thought it was great to stick with that detail because I think that applies to Cabrini Green, you know, even more so. Yeah. Another great facet of Candyman, obviously in Tony Todd, you have this totally unique performer. I mean, six foot five, yet he has a classic Shakespearean theatrical kind of vibe to his voice and his stature. He has a, they call it in some of the featurettes, like a regalness. And the costume choices are so atypical and weird kind of for a horror movie. He's wearing this fur floor length cape or coat with these beautiful Italian handcrafted shoes. Yes. Um, about that coat they were talking about consciously trying to make him seem like a Victorian romantic yes. with a capital R yes. figure, which I thought was a fantastic choice. And then adding on to that, the elements of urban legend. Uh, mm -hmm. specifically the hook for a the hand, hook, yes. which is nine out of 10 urban legends involve a hook for hook a hand. on a hand, yeah. I don't think I've ever seen one in the wild, you know? <laughs> Certainly not with like a big steel, like butcher's hook or whatever. Yeah, like, no. Yeah. So you also have some just genuinely to this day still stunning practical effects, mm -hmm. notably the inclusion of the bees in the story where the professor is talking about how after they hacked his arm off, I mean, again, these Baroque details, they broke the hive and took the honeycomb and rubbed it all over his naked body. And then the bees came and stung him to death. And again, this is pre-Neil LeBute's Wicker Man with Nicolas Cage. That didn't exist and does did not doesn't, it doesn't it, exist it, now. It didn't happen. <laughs> it doesn't exist. There is only one Wicker Man film, and it is not that one. And it is Midsummer. <laughs> Um, so when Candyman finally appears to Helen at the end of the film, there's this incredible scene of him revealing himself to her with the bees. We have a bargain. But I'm afraid. Do you fear the pain or what is beyond? Both. The pain, I can assure you, will be exquisite. As for our deaths, there is nothing to fear. Our names will be written on a thousand walls, our crimes told and retold by our faithful believers. We shall die together in front of their very eyes and give them something to be haunted by. Come with me and be immortal. 
Just these kind of shocking, like amazing, almost beautiful images of Tony Todd with a mouthful of bees and yeah. bees all over him. He opens up that long coat yes. and he, his torso is rotten. You see his skeleton stuffed with bees and, and all of these yes. bees come out. Then you go up to his face and he has bees coming out of his mouth. And it was pretty interesting to hear about how they filmed it. They had an actual bee wrangler. Who everyone really loved hanging out with and spending time with. And I think he set up hives like on the studio where they were filming these scenes, which were actually, I think, on a soundstage uh-huh. in California, not in Cabrini Green. But he set the hives up. And didn't he tell Tony Todd that, look, I know it sounds crazy, but you got to think of them as individuals. I think he said to personalize them. Personalize the bees. So Tony Todd would be like, you mean like this is Francis? And yeah. this is, <laughs> yeah, that, there you go. Name them. And they built him like a little thing, right? For his mouth. Like a, yes, like they, a, a, a mouth guard of some to, kind right, to, to he, fill with bees. They would put these bees into his mouth, but they put a, a mouth guard in the back so that they wouldn't like go down his throat. Though he was talking in uh, in an interview on the, the DVD about how one time one of them did get behind the... Uh, Oh, behind the I, latex. But oh. he kept on with the scene. And when they called cut, they took the thing out and he was spitting out all these bees. They were baby bees, though. They, they were, said. yeah. So they that was pretty Apparently, they don't sting. Until they're 24 hours old. Uh, and I, didn't so know, these I did not like, know that. They would shoot for the 12 hour aged bees. Yes. Uh, so that they wouldn't sting. Though, and he, again, here's a funny thing this is a Hollywood issue. Tony Todd had put into his contract that if he ever got stung, he would get a $1,000 bonus. And he ended up getting 23 stings over the course of it. Tony Todd, in listening to him talk a little bit, he definitely understands and embraces his presence in the Pantheon as the Candyman character and takes a lot of pride and care with it. I saw one thing on an interview with him before he had been cast in the forthcoming one. And he was like, they haven't contacted me, but I'm sure they will. And and of course, you can't do one without him. Right. Like, it would have zero credibility. However, listening to him talk and looking at his IMDb page and some other things that he's done, I don't think his first choice as an actor would have been to be a horror icon. No, perhaps not. But he seems to uh, he seems no, to of course he bought into the it, melodrama of it. And- he's much more a Shakespearean trained actor than he is a horror movie guy. Uh, you know, he's he's a fantastic actor. I mean, you can't imagine the movie without him. Like, right. there's there's no way. And Virginia Madsen, who was never a big star. Yes. I mean, this is almost the most I've ever seen her be given to do. Um, I have to look through her. I do love her. You know that I'm a big fan of... Highlander, yeah. And I know she was in Highlander <laughs> 2. Yeah, I was going to get to uh, that. That's not what I was going for. Um, but I am a huge fan of the... Coppola film with Matthew. Modine. No. McConaughey. No. Damon. Matthew Damon. Oh, Rainmaker. (laughs) You know, that movie I'm a huge fan of that I can't remember the name of or the (laughs) names of anyone that appears in it. I am a huge Rainmaker guy. You know that. I mentioned it before. Yes. I even wrote that down in my notes because when I noticed that she had been Andrew in Andrew Shu, Mickey Rourke, Virginia Manson, Dean Stockwell, Mary Kay Place, John Voigt, Claire Danes. Need I go on? Okay, I will. Danny DeVito, Matt Damon, Roy Scheider, Randy freaking Travis. You don't know who that is. but No, he's the, he's the guy who was in Black Dog. He looks like Patrick Swayze. <laughs> True. Yes, he's you know, arguably one of the most famous country 
singers of our time, but that's neither here nor there. (laughs) Danny Glover. I mean, it's a great film. And she has an important turn as Jackie Lemanchik, who ends up spilling the tea on the scam that has been perpetrated by Roy Scheider's insurance company. Uh, She was also in Mussolini, The Untold Story with uh, George C. Scott. Ah, That thing keeps coming back. I pledge my life upon this battleground, ready to kill if that is required, or to die. I think we have to do that, Chris. Those things <laughs> get really esoteric. Um, I mean, she's had an insanely long career. Yes. You know, and, and I think probably her best known to, is probably Sideways, where she was the romantic. Do you think? I guess I would think so. Like, you don't think the, she's best known as Lorraine from Moonlighting? I don't, yeah. Or I'm, Dolly in the Hot Spot? That was a big Don Johnson movie of the 90s. Don't you remember that? No. No. Oh. <laughs> that's that's I remember all, it. Um, How about The Prophecy? Yeah. I remember that, but again, I'll, I'll take sideways, which, you know, I, 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 Whatever. I thought she was, uh, I thought she was great in that. Like, I just think that that's probably her, her best known, but yeah, she was great. What else should we get into in terms of Candyman? It did spawn a couple sequels and I think Tony Todd <laughs> 10 was, is a, how many, how many are, not quite are that how many, many are we counting <laughs> I think now? Only three. That's it? I mean, rather, I think there were only three of them. Candyman, uh, Candyman, Candyman 2. Farewell to the, yeah, Candyman, Candyman <laughs> Candy 2, three. and Candyman 4. They never make it. <laughs> no, it's Candyman, Candyman Farewell to the Flesh, and Candyman Day of the Dead. Three great titles. Uh, one. It's remarkable great restraint <laughs> to only make three. I mean, no, I'm, well, I'm being serious. Fourth, like, it feels like there would be 10 of these by now. I think they saw the returns diminishing a lot more quickly yeah. than they expected. Farewell to the Flesh is number two. Yeah. And both bizarrely was, by Bill back. Condon. Well, I was going to say, that's a really interesting thing about that, because I think they they said that, uh, you know, obviously the studio wanted to do an approach to Bernard Rose, who had some pretty interesting ideas. I think one of which was, I don't remember if this was Bernard Rose's idea or Clive Barker's idea, but to combine... A little bit of Candyman. Mm-hmm. Uh, another Clive Barker story called Midnight Meat Train. <laughs> and then um, I think a third sort of ghost story also from Books of Blood and to sort of weave them together mm. in a in a film, uh, which I'm the interested. producer's like- uh, Color me interested. <laughs> All I want is more Candyman money. Uh, though Midnight Meat Train ended up getting made into its own film. Which With actually, a title like that, <laughs> you were going to get into alternative casting. casting. <laughs> Put that one back. Uh, yes, there's not that much, but it was a pretty interesting story, specifically about how Virginia Madsen hmm. uh, got the role. Originally, Virginia Madsen was going to play the best friend role, and Helen was Casey going to be played role. by uh, an actress by the name of Alexandra Pig, who at the time was married to Bernard Rose. Two G's, I assume. Two G's, yes. Yeah, you have to have two G's. But then they decided to make the character African-American, which is when Casey Lemons was given the role. Virginia Madsen was out, uh, probably on the unemployment line. But then Alexander Pig got pregnant. Ah. And had to step away from the role. And she and Virginia Madsen were friends. And so she did approach her and say, like, look, if wow. anybody's going to play it, I would want it to be you. And so uh, that's how she ended up getting the role. But if Virginia Madsen was not able to do it, the next choice was going to be Sandra Bullock. Who what? everybody would know as Tess McGill in the television adaptation of Working Girl. Yikes. Is Virginia Madsen in the Candyman sequel? I don't believe so. Oh, we didn't even talk about the end, which is amazing when she sort of takes over the, the Candyman role. Now we're back on pretty firm horror movie ground where that's sort of what you expect. Uh, but, I, but I did like the way they played it in that he's in the bathroom where she and Casey Lemons originally conjured Candyman. He's now with... 
the comely young co-ed, uh, but is like devastated and destroyed and really loved Helen and, and his awareness of what he's done. He's in the bathroom um, and she's saying, come on out for dinner. And of course the bloom is off this like relationship that had been already, you know, yeah, already. <laughs> and he's saying, oh, Helen. Oh, he says, oh, Helen five, five times. times. Then she comes up and she comes up, which is, it is great. Yeah. It is a great kill. But I that's why also, I wanted more. Like I want, if we're going to have a sequel, I want to see her then go on more of a rampage. Exactly. I, guess I, I think that was of one of the criticisms of the sequels of like, well, by all rights, it should be Helen. Yeah. As the as the candy person. But the only other piece of alternative casting, which is, of course, who might have played Candyman, it would have been a very different film if it had been Eddie Murphy. <laughs> that would uh that would be. Although I would have liked to hear him laugh as Candyman. That would have had a horrifying impact all its own. I saw two theories as to why, besides the fact that it's a terrible idea. <laughs> but like besides that. either because he was five nine as opposed to six five, mm-hmm. which made for a very different yes. physicality. Also, uh his salary would have been quite sure. a bit more than forty million dollars. But I wonder if that like would that have been him trying to, trying to change out. his image, or would that have been them trying to make it more of a horror comedy? I think everyone would have been disappointed. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It would have been neither of them. I mean, it wouldn't have worked on neither one. We now have a toll-free telephone number. That's and right. And we would like listeners to call us. Let me log in so I can figure out what our number is because I purposely chose a good one. And what we want you to do is something like call us and leave us a message. Do I need to be That's more it. specific than that, Chris? Yeah. You could say anything you want. You anyway. can have suggestions of what we should do, shouldn't do. You Tell know. us a movie that you've got to watch all the way through whenever it's on. Things that you hate in movies. I would think that something we would have fun with is if people said, I want you guys to address this trope and let us find some examples to say, we got this great voicemail from a listener and they mentioned this filmic trope. Call us toll free 855-755-5322. That's 855-755-5322. That is very memorable. Yeah. Eight Five five seven five 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 three two two. Yeah. Um, now, Chris is going to record a clever voicemail thing so that when you call, you're going to hear him, and he's going to figure out how to do it. Yeah. There's that. value added. All right, Chris. Would you like to move on to rants and raves? Yes. I've got one for you here. It's been a while since I've had a proper rant, and I know you've probably been missing it. Yes, very um, much so. This is a commercial that I saw the other day. So one of my pet peeves is. Tech Bro founder radio spots in commercials. Tech Bros have reinvented everything, right? Uh-huh. And they've created companies to do all kinds of stupid shit that we used to just do ourselves. For example, they have reinvented underwear. With all the innovations in the world, from flip phones to smartphones, black and white TV to HD TV, why hasn't underwear changed? They need to disrupt old photos. <laughs> if you're like us, you have a box of old videotapes, film reels, and photos just degrading away in your closet. They need to disrupt having memories with your friends. Automatic reminders will direct your friends to a personal web page where they can learn about the tribute and upload their video of any size. And they need to disrupt sleeping in sheets. We believe everyone deserves a great night's sleep. So we created the perfect sheets. We reimagined the whole process from the ground up. As if that's not fucking enough. This ad the other day I watched, and I just was agog that this is a thing. This is an ad for something called Carpe, which is designed to prevent the soles of your feet and the palms of your hands from sweating. Please watch. First dates tend to have a way of making us nervous. And being nervous usually means sweaty hands or sweaty feet. Her feet are literally leaving puddles on her floors. He is hunched over a sink. Carpe antiperspirant lotion. 
It's easy to use, goes on smooth, and keeps you sweat-free all night long. So you can make sure that first date turns into a second one. Okay. Now, we understand that for millennia, infomercials work on creating a problem that doesn't actually exist and then proffering you a solution for it. (laughs) So no one has ever had hands that literally drip perspiration onto the floor, as we're seeing in this commercial. If they did, it would be a much larger issue and you should see a doctor. Exactly. Now, the essential nature of these commercials is the tech bros explaining to us how they have disrupted something that needs no disruption. Here are our founders, Casper and David Spratt. Hi, I'm Casper. And I'm David. And we're the guys that decided to make Carpe. We had really sweaty hands and it was just really awkward and embarrassing on dates, meetings, and just everyday life. So we decided to make a solution that would stop that. When we set out to create Carpe, we wanted to make something that worked great, but was also really simple to use. And we think we've done exactly that. Okay, yeah, I just want to I just want to pause here and tell you and the listeners that we are now about to have explained to us how to put on deodorant. So here's how you use Carpe. First, wash and completely dry your hands. Next, apply a small pea-sized drop to your hands. The key is that a little bit of Carpe will stop a lot of sweat. After that, rub it in, and you should feel it completely soaked in within 30 seconds. After 10 minutes, Carpe is doing its magic. If you're using Carpe to help manage chronic excessive sweating, like hyperhidrosis, the best way to do that is to apply it three times a day. For us, we found that those times are the morning, the afternoon, and one time before bed. That last one's really important because during the night is when your skin sweats the least, and so Carpe will have the maximum efficacy, the maximum chance to work then. Okay, let's just repeat the last line. At night, that's when your hands sweat the least, and that's when our product will work the best. So in other words, this bullshit lotion that they're selling doesn't do anything. By the way, I I think they make a good case. Here's a step-by-step tutorial on how to put lotion on your hands. (laughs) They wouldn't be so nervous and have sweaty hands if they would put on shirts. They're both wearing like- They're wearing Tech Bro t-shirts. They're not even t-shirts. Those are like undershirts. And the other guy, his khakis are irreparably wrinkled on the left leg. You can't do that. Their sequel product is going to be for excessive thigh sweating. You might think that sweating is universal, Chris. No, there's situational sweat. I'm going to educate you about that right now. But if you need carpe to stop situational sweat, you know, if you've got some performance, some some situation where you need sweat-free hands, sweat-free feet, carpe is great for that as well. And you want to apply carpe about 10 minutes before you need it to perform. And perform it will. Whether you're going to the date... The big game or the meeting? The day. The big game. The big meeting. We're the founders. We obviously love this stuff. We made it to stop our sweaty hands, so of course it works on us. Um, but you know, we think you should probably hear from other people who also really love it. So This is the part where they just they have their friends pretend so to be users. Hyperhidrosis is never knowing when you're going to be sweaty. Carpe has really helped me with that. She um, never knows when she's going to be sweaty. clients so that shaking their hands is important. It's not that complicated to use. It's not like having like a extra step in your routine. It's just like you use it and you're done. I would recommend Carpe to anyone who is feeling insecure about their hand sweat. 
I would recommend Carpe to anybody who's feeling insecure. Well, gosh, yeah, I, mean, yeah. I suppose. But yeah. about my hand sweat, this is the least of my problems. I was hoping there was a part where they're like, you know what? If you don't have hand sweat, it doesn't matter. Carpe is still great for you. <laughs> it Use smells it nice. Just to help you feel better. Well, you know, Jay, this is also like a feature film. This oh, thing. You did you watch this whole commercial? I watched all of this. This is this I, is this commercial has been running on ESPN. Right. And then, of course, me being me, I went down the Carpe wormhole, and oh, they boy, got you. did it reward. There's more. Is there another testimonial? Yeah, there's one more. Would you like to? Yes, please. Continue? Here it is. Um, I've been using Carpe for about a year and a half now. And with interviews, I want to make sure I make that good first impression. So Carpe is an easy go-to. Hyperhidrosis is really common, whether you know it or not. And Carpe is a great way just to combat those symptoms and really just give you confidence back in, in your everyday life. And that's Carpe, the simple and effective solution to your unwanted sweat. If you have any questions or comments, anything, we really would love to hear from you. Shoot us an email at info at carpelotion.com or give us a call. And thanks for checking out Carpe. Yeah, I got a question and a comment. How about I just roll a deodorant on my palms and my hands? And first of all, the other thing, I guess it's second of all, is I never shook hands with anybody who, who dripped a puddle onto the floor. That's never occurred to me in my entire life. Count yourself lucky, man. This is not a thing. Don't tell me. You call it. There's a phone number up there right now. <laughs> How much you want to bet one of these answers the phone? Got to admire the hustle. Oh, do you? The best part of the commercial is the poor young woman. The guy, you can just, he's just rubbing his hands like, oh gosh, they must be sweaty. But the woman getting ready for the date, like you said, it's as if she just got out of a pool. She's leaving she literal like <laughs> wet pools of water on her floor getting ready for a date. And yes. God knows men would never take a second date with a beautiful woman who left pools of sweat on the floor as she walked across. I mean, I would be curious. <laughs> Like, is it raining out? Did you walk here through a puddle? Anyway, that's just my rave or rant or whatever <laughs> no, right? it was. Too late. <laughs> I wonder what happens if you don't have sweaty hands and if you do use it. Will they, will they become don't desiccated? It, and yeah. <laughs> Chris, suck up all the moisture. Skeletor-like. All right, Chris, would you like to move on to headlines? Please, yes. Okay. Headlines. You know my ongoing fascination with robots? You may have seen that last week there was an incredible physical accomplishment by Eliud Kipchoge, who recorded the fastest marathon ever recorded. Oh, It was yes. under two hours. Yes. He ran 13 miles per hour. You're not suggesting that he's a robot, are you? No, but fucking robots had to come in and steal human's thunder because as reported by Popular Mechanics, the people that make those freaky leopard-like leaping robot bipedal elliptical oh, runner things. things. Well, guess Your what? Future they can run at 12 miles per hour and the next generation of the Boston Dynamics one are going to run even faster. Wow. And another one with rotating legs can run at 32 miles an hour. So guess what, humans? <laughs> Holy shit. You don't have to do anything anymore. Wow. And if they don't get you by running, this is what I thought you were going to mention. They can also get you by doing the Rubik's Cube. <laughs> did you see the robot hand that did a Rubik's Cube? No, hand? they did that? Yeah. Oh, God. Robots yeah, can solve AI Rubik's Cubes. This AI learned how to solve a Rubik's Cube okay, there we with go. one hand. Wow. Of course, don't be too scared because Wired has a follow-up article, Why Solving a Rubik's Cube Does Not Signal Robot Supremacy. Not yet. The running thing, however. <laughs> Here's another one just to shamelessly promote our own podcast. Dennis Lawson is in the news. Dennis Lawson, Wedge Antilles, is slated to reprise that role in Rise of Skywalker. You and I talked about in the past how a marginal throwaway character with one or so lines of dialogue per movie 
given the magnitude of the Star Wars fandom, there are novels that star Wedge That's, Antilles. Yeah. There's fan fiction. I hope to God there's not fan erotica, but I'm sure there is. <laughs> if there isn't, give and me like, a few minutes. We posted this. And like, there's all these people who are apparently Wedge Antilles fans who are like overloading the Facebook page with Dennis Lawson Star They're Wars trivia. super psyched. Everybody, I think the only person who's been in a Star Wars movie who hasn't been asked back is Norman Chancer. Dennis Lawson is, of course, prominently featured in what I will say is one of the criminally underappreciated episodes of the pod. Yes. In our... Local hero. Local hero episode. Which is also where uh, Norman Chancer is from. That's right. Yeah, he's Moritz in Local Hero. You're right. And he also has an uncredited role where I think he we just got in the back into, of his head. We, we must have got into all this on the episode that I think oh, is so good yes. that I can't recall. <laughs> right? This next one, I want to be clear up front. I'm not reading this story making fun of the person at the heart of the story. Great. I actually think this is cool. And it comes up because in our Latchkey TV segment, we do Three's Company, and Suzanne Summers is, was a cast member yes. of Three's Company. So Suzanne Summers just had a birthday, and she's 73 years old. And she shared a photo of herself in her outdoor bathtub on her Palm Springs estate. And it caused a ruckus because she is posing in her birthday suit in the wildflowers. It's not full frontal nudity, yeah, yeah. but she's nude and holding her arms over her breasts. And I think, she looks, I think done. she looks great, and yeah. it's tastefully done. And of course, the internet was aghast. Dare we see a 73-year-old female form in the wild? Uh, and people are shaming her and telling her to put clothes on and that she's too old to do this. Oh. But you know what? Good for you, Suzanne Summers. In the people's defense, it's not like there's anything of importance going on in the world right now that people should pay more attention to than shaming a woman for being comfortable with her body. Let her do whatever she wants to do. Exactly. Those are all my headlines. Do you have any headlines? I don't have any headlines, but there is a segment which I'm a little bit surprised that you did not mention. The Columbo, Columbo Cinematic, Cinematic Universe. Ah, oh, one more thing. Wait, did I miss that? Yes. In Candyman? Yes. You missed that Doug McHugh, who played the first orderly and was also in Alan Parker's Come See the Paradise, he had been in the Columbo episode Sex and the Married Detective oh, from 1989. That's a great one. He played bartender number one. Oh, I remember him as the bartender. <laughs> oh, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> Columbo had great bartenders in their scenes. <laughs> they did. I'm, I'm, I'm being serious. This is an episode that actually starred some pretty impressive actors. I mean, Lindsay Krauss is the protagonist yes. here. And Peter Jurassic, who was also referenced this guy. He came up in, I know what it was. It was in the Lee Wilkoff episode. Oh, he's in Beverly Hills Bunce. That's uh, what it was. Oh, yes. Sid Thurston. So anyway, that is an interesting Columbo. So Lindsay Krauss plays a therapist who has a book and a big TV show, and kills her business partner slash lover because he's cheating on her. What's his name? That's another link to Candyman, because that's pretty much what that's Helen it, does. Yeah, that's a good catch, Chris. I'm glad that you now are starting to get into Abs the Columbo yes. cinematic I really, I, I really was hoping to be somebody a little bit more top line. No offense <laughs> to Doug McHugh. Hey, it's the, there are no small parts. Exactly. Now I have a new segment I would like to debut. Matt, I'm going to want you to make a appropriate sound effect. This segment is called The Bomb Squad. <laughs> Yeah, something in a bomb. I didn't care for it. Something like <laughs> I didn't care for it. So the bomb squad 
<laughs> is a new feature, not out of mean-spiritedness, but you and I, we watch a lot of movie trailers. We're exposed to a lot of sure. content. And I think that after 54 episodes and a year of doing the podcast, I believe that you and I, or at least I, I'll speak for myself. I don't want to speak for you because again, I know that you're a more positive skewing person and you'll find something to like in anything. I'm trying. And I'm more the type of person that's going to look at something and I will make a snap judgment and say, that's a bomb. Yes. The bomb squad is where one or the other of us is going to, not with any pleasure, inform you, the listener, that the trailer, at least, of the film in question has a little bit of the feeling and the smell of a lit fuse. And this week's Bomb Squad pick is Ford v. Ferrari. We're going to bury Ferrari at Le Mans. So the great Carol Shelby is going to build a car to beat Ferrari with a Ford. Correct. And how long did you tell them you needed? Two or three hundred years? 90 days. <laughs> Ford hates guys like us because we're different. Well, we heard he's difficult. Ken? No, no, Ken's a puppy dog. There's a problem. The computer will find it. Get some scotch tape and a ball of wool. What are they doing? Making your car faster. Oh! Ken Miles is not a Ford man. We're on the verge of something. And now you tell me that I can't have the best man in the world behind the wheel? Give me one reason why I don't fire everyone starting with you. Well, sir. We're lighter. We're faster. So nice. And that don't work. We're nastier. Go ahead, Carol. Go to war. You got a plan. It's high risk. I thought the whole point was to win the damned race. If this were a beauty pageant, we just lost. Looks hard, everything. Okay, it's a boys and toys movie with. Matt Damon and Christian Bale as car designer Carol Shelby and British driver Ken Miles going to war against Ferrari to win Le Mans. You know, it's funny you should mention it because I didn't care when I heard about this movie. And then I saw the trailer a couple times and I sort of, and I like James Mangold, of course. He's a wonderful Love director. Love James Mangold. Made, but uh, yeah, each successive time, I, I Doesn't it like have it the feeling of a bomb squad movie? It's like something that car-obsessed Hollywood executives and actors talk themselves into doing because they get to pretend to drive cars really fast. And it's got that outside. I think it was how obvious the pitch elements yes. were in the trailer. Here's was, Carol Shelby. No one expects this Texas-bred car designer to go toe-to-toe with Ferrari. Yeah. That's this week's Bomb Squad. Now, again, what we're going to do I is- I think it's a great new segment. If I'm proven wrong, I will be the first to admit it. That's why this is a new segment. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's clamoring for Ford v. Ferrari. It's also, you know, we're now in a, uh, you know, cars, we, we're kind of trying to move away from the whole fossil <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> fuel thing. Let's move on to Latchkey TV. Hello? Latchkey TV, which, you know, I noticed today that we hadn't done it in a while. So. I know. Well, you know, I just give it a rest sometime. You're doing it this week. I think you're going to find something that maybe we've been missing for a little while. No, nothing. No. <laughs> 
No, yeah, yeah, that's exactly exactly. Right. I was excited to look at it. So I'm going to assume that this day, get home from school a little mm-hmm. bit on the early side, about 2.50, so I'm catching the end of uh, badminton. This was luckily highlights of the 1988 World Cup in Ooh, Hong Kong. Love that. So competitive World Cup badminton. Totally would watch that. Oh, totally, yeah, it's the kind of thing that would be hypnotic. And then at three o'clock, uh, same channel, would go to Fishing Hole, mm. which I assume is about fish. or... <laughs> okay, so you're uh, being outdoorsy. Yeah, yeah. I think you know because indoors I'm not. with your TV, <laughs> fantasizing about being outdoors, actually doing stuff. Exactly. This is the kind of virtual reality I can get behind. <laughs> At four p.m., I would watch the uh, one of my favorite crime dramas, Magnum P.I. Well, I just watched a commercial the other day. Tom Selleck is doing reverse mortgage commercials now. That's a tier in your career as a trusted actor. Once you reach a certain age, you now get drummed into service to sell reverse mortgages to vulnerable elderly people. Yeah. And Tom Selleck is now doing that with his trustworthy mustache. And he doesn't need the money. But this you know is what? doing it because he believes in the product, I'm This is sure. the thing. It works even on me. This is how advertising works. I don't need a reverse mortgage. I'm not at an age where that's advantageous for me. I'm literally like, if Tom Selleck is putting his name behind that product, God damn it, it must be yeah. a virtuous product. He actually addresses the very thing you're thinking. Yeah. He's like, it's not a scam. I know what you're thinking. I thought what you thought. Some things are just too good to be true. Just like you, I thought that reverse mortgages had to have some kind of catch, just a way for the banks to get your house, right? Well, then I did some homework, and I found out it's not any of that. Which, of course, like, you're telling me it's not what it is. It's not a scam. He literally says that. that? He literally says it. He's like, I know what you're thinking. It's some kind of scam designed to part... But the fact is, all he says is, it's not. And you're like, hey, good enough for me, Tom. Well, in this episode of Magnum P.I., an escaped convict Mm. takes refuge with his old friend Higgins. Sure. And enlists a reluctant Magnum to find his grandson's kidnapper. Now, to which I'd say, like, screw you. Like, what are you so reluctant about? The kid's been kidnapped. (laughs) Yeah. Hopefully, uh, Magnum gets convinced to actually save this poor kid. Because he's skeptical. Well, no, not so much skeptical as reluctant. Oh, reluctant. As if like, the game's on. Do I have to find the kidnapper? Do you think he's reluctant because he doesn't want to get in like one of Higgins's things? Or is he reluctant in that he just, his senses are going off? He's an escaped con. So maybe that's why. That's fair enough. Yeah. At five o'clock, I would watch Hollywood Squares because one, it's a great show, but two, it's got Kim Fields, Yakov Smirnoff, Phyllis Diller, Jim J. Bullock, and Joan Rivers. Now that is a wow. powerhouse. powerhouse. I love JMJ. I always thought it was Jim. It is Jim. I oh, just say JMJ Bullock. It is Jim J. Because that's what but it's it, a Hollywood spelling. Here. Is he still alive? Well, better check. Why isn't he working? Yeah, he's only he's 64. My, yeah. Why isn't he working? I'm going to say, why isn't he working? And he's probably got an IMDb page that's like <laughs> 30 like, credits. He's like, yeah, you know, look, I've been putting out these specials that well, are on the Hallmark last, channel every year. His last gig is 2015. He also, he might be retired. Yeah. He, he might be like, I've had enough. We talked about this before. It's like Dennis Franz, you know, Lee Wilkoff was like, he just, he, the minute he had enough, he's like, I am done. Because acting is something you can do your whole life. And a career as an actor, you think you're going to continue to do it. You would think that like you go into it out of a sense of passion and this desire to do it, that sure, even if you have all the money in the world, you still presumably have the desire, but who knows? Here's a trivia question for you. Jim J. Bullock trivia question. Of course, he's most well known for being Monroe on Too Close for Comfort. Yes. Do you know what Monroe's last name was? It was also Monroe. No. Good (laughs) guess though. It was ficus. (laughs) Like the plant. (laughs) 
There's an episode of Benson that's coming on Ooh, after that Hollywood I know you're twist. a big Benson guy. The host of a yacht party celebrating the governor's second inauguration is murdered, and the killer oh. is loose on board. Wait, this is a Benson? Oh, so that's it. Like, <laughs> I think they're trying to, maybe they're just switching wow. genres. This has to be late Benson. That's like, I'm, when I go to Benson, I'm the not political looking intrigue. for a murder mystery. No. I want a snappy half-hour comedy. I hope it ended up being Rene Aubergenois. <laughs> and then there's, this is the end. He's like, you know what? I snapped. No. I had enough. <laughs> it was Inga Swenson. Next, I think I'd watch TJ Hooker because that was another- Sure. Adrian Zmed. I enjoyed. Adrian Zmed, yeah. yeah speaking of better names. Greece. He's uh, one of the examples of like, if you have a weird name like Zmed, you can make an argument you're better off keeping that weird name because no one will no forget one will it. No one will forget it. Absolutely. Next, I would watch MASH. Uh, Which because one? This is, I'll tell you. So this is a show. It just goes to show that you can't just listen to the pitch. Because <laughs> if you didn't have like the brilliance of the people who made MASH, this would just be another garbage sitcom. Mm -hmm. BJ sabotages Charles's efforts to play his Mahler records. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and <laughs> we are late in the run. My a friends. friend of Potter's is brought in with a minor wound. <laughs> the stakes could mm. not be lower. <laughs> I think it's a scratch. What do you think, Hawkeye? No, it looks no, more that's like an, an abrasion. Bite. <laughs> well, let's rub How some many alcohol on it. Left. <laughs> Boy, playing the Mahler record. Yeah, that's a that's a stretch. I mean, gee, against the tableau of the Korean War, what possible plot lines could we come up with? Yeah. I'm going to go against your theory here and say that it probably is a bad episode because it has so little going on. I would like to give it the benefit of the doubt, but A, we're in Charles territory. And even though David Ogden Cyrus was great, that's not the mash we want. Okay. Well, I, I mean, I love David Ogden Cyrus and I, I think of those episodes fondly as well. I, I, I'm, again, a, I saw it as a, I'm a Larry Linville guy. Yeah. To me, the greatest annoyance on mash was Frank Burns, right. not Charles Winchester. All right. Next, I would watch Matlock. Really? Uh, Matlock. Ooh, well, yeah. mostly because Matlock defends a TV producer accused of backstabbing. Literally. <laughs> a network programming chief. Cameo appearances by Jason Bateman, Corbin Burnson, Rhea Perlman, Malcolm Jamal Warner, wow. Betty White, and Alf. Okay. <laughs> I'm actually going to go home and watch that tonight. Absolutely. I guarantee you Corbin Burnson is the sleazy TV producer. Because it says cameo appearances. I think they're like um, on the, the lot and Corbin Burnson is like, oh, I'm learning my lines for LA Law. And Matlock is defending the producer? Yes. You know, Matlock wasn't afraid to take the unpopular cases. No. Uh, Everyone deserves a defense, Chris. Matlock was not exactly friend to the working man. He was a, definitely he a, was a high priced LA defense attorney. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> sure. He plays up that whole down home thing, but that guy was Wait, a shark. Where did Matlock actually take place? Just uh, Matlock studied the law at Harvard, establishes law practice in Atlanta. Hotlanta. Matlock so went to Harvard? Harvard? <laughs> Are you that for real? Yeah, exactly. Come on. <laughs> Everybody's like, oh, he, he went to wherever Lincoln went and studied also by candlelight. Yeah, I no, think Matlock, Matlock went to a one-room schoolhouse. No. I bet if you look at all the episodes... Matlock defends an oil executive. You're telling me, you're telling me Matlock <laughs> from is in mothers who were trying now? to get rid of asthma. I love the description. Matlock is noted for his thrift and a fondness for hot dogs. <laughs> you're right. Despite his thrift, Matlock's standard fee is $100,000, <laughs> usually paid up front. Wait a minute. I thought Matlock was a down home attorney fighting for the downtrodden. I don't know. Come to find out. Hundred grand. Where does that money that was, go? That was nineteen eighty-six dollars. He also reluctantly takes a pro bono case occasionally. Yeah, when court <laughs> ordered. I didn't really realize Matlock was Andy Griffith playing against type. 
That's a dick from the 1%. Hmm. The season finale, I guess he stabs one of his interns. <laughs> Uh, as we're getting into evening time, I mm. might watch this movie just because it's a great title, Lone Wolf McQuaid. Oh, sure. Chuck Norris as a hard-bitten Texas lawman versus a villainous gunrunner. As if there's any other kind. Yeah. David Carradine. David Carradine, man. It's a good movie. Well, yeah. I mean, it's good of its type. Right. It's got LQ Jones. He's another great that guy. Great mustache. Probably second only to Sam... What's his name? That's not Sam Elliott. Uh, well, I'm saying second only to Sam Elliott oh, in oh. the Hollywood <laughs> mustachioed category. Right. right? He hates Sam Elliott. He's like, ah, that could have been me. I stole my mustache. I could have been in the Big Lebowski. What's the most famous mustache in Hollywood history? Uh, you can do American TVs and then film. So what's the most famous mustache in American film? It's got to be Sam Elliott, right? Yeah. Maybe like John Waters or, I mean, he's I a little counterculture. John Waters he probably yeah. doesn't have quite the uh, cultural spread in the middle of the country that you're perhaps ascribing to his <laughs> pencil mustache as much as you'd like it to be. I think like Sam Elliott probably yeah, speaks right. a little wider. Well, what about what's that guy from um, Gone with the Wind? Clark with Gable. Ears. Clark Gable. Maybe. That's a good one. Clark Gable. Because again, if we're talking about like Hollywood over time and like, and, and he's sure. iconic in a way that, you know, no offense to Sam Elliott. Well, listen, listeners, we've probably missed some glaring Hollywood mustaches. Yeah. Please send us or post photos. The most famous TV mustache has to be Magnum, Magnum right? Absolutely. Period. Full stop. Yeah. Anything else, Chris? The last thing would be this uh, awesome sounding world premiere of Nightmare at Bitter Creek, which has a great looking ad. Ooh. But what's funny about the Is that ad- Tom Skerritt? Yeah. It says, outnumbered, unarmed, off guard. Four women on a camping trip must stand together and fight for their lives. Starring Lindsay Wagner, Constance McCashin, Joanna Cassidy, and Tom Skerritt. I and what's funny about that Joanna is it Cassidy. says, like, four women. Yes. But actually only lists three women. <laughs> no, I, mean, I think one of them has to die pretty quickly. It probably is that. And actually, if you go into the description in the TV guide itself, Nightmare at Bitter Creek casts Lindsay Wagner in a 1988 TV movie about three women and a teenage girl who hire a boozy guide, Tom Skerritt, for a weekend mountain trek, only to find themselves trapped and hunted by fugitive white supremacists who have taken over the mountain. Chris, as a, as a child and to this day, I have a unrequited film crush on Joanna Cassidy. No kidding. I've always loved her laugh. <laughs> Have you been? <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> what, no, I like your laugh. What? Now, I know you know her from Blade Runner, but she had an incredible laugh, and that's what I always oh, remember. Yeah. You know, she's done everything. Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Anyway. She's also in the Tommyknockers and Night Games. She's still working. Uh, good for her. Yeah. Good for her and good for us. But now it's time for bed. After Nightmare in the River. Bedtime for Bonzo? Not just Bonzo. Me too. Okay. Until next week, remember this bit of sage advice from the prequel to this week's film. Don't forget what happened to the man who suddenly got everything he always wanted. What happened? He lived happily ever after. <laughs>